0: Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Feared, revered, persecuted, and worshipped, wolves have lived alongside humans for millennia all across the Northern Hemisphere. In the United States, Anglo-Saxon settlers decimated wolf populations to protect their livestock and families from predation. Biologists recognized the destruction removing wolves had on the ecosystem and reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone National Park in the 1990s. Since then, wolf populations have flourished. Many areas have recovered from years of overgrazing by large herbivores, and wolf tourism and hunting have brought in millions of dollars to local communities. In the past couple of years, however, wolves have been at the center of wildlife politics in the United States, much to their detriment. So. What's actually going on with wolves in the U.S.? Why are some states doing everything possible to get rid of their wolves while others are saving them? Why did wolves lose federal protection in the first place? To answer these questions and so much more, today I'm sitting down with Aaron Bott, a wildlife biologist and wolf expert. In the 1800s, Aaron's family moved west to make a new life in the wild Rocky Mountains. When his ancestors first arrived in the area, wolves were thriving and represented a very real threat to the new settlers. Over the following century, wolves were removed to make room for more and more pioneer families. Fast forward to today, and Aaron's family still resides in the Rockies with a mixed view of wolves. Aaron grew up exploring his family's mountain home and fell in love with the area's wildlife. Once it was time to choose his future path, he decided to pursue a career as a wildlife biologist studying human-wolf conflict and how to mitigate it. With extensive research experience and rich family history, very few people understand society wolf dynamics better than Aaron, and I'm more than excited to share our conversation with you. Get ready to finally have a firm grasp on the science and politics behind all of the headlines you've seen in the past year. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to be alerted when the next episode drops. Also, if you'd like to stay in the know on everything the podcast is getting into, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for our monthly newsletter. I promise, fun emails only. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Aaron. Well, hi Aaron. thanks again so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast. I've been looking forward to this interview for literally years now, being a predator expert myself. This is a topic that I've been tracking closely the past couple of years, and I have not had the opportunity to sit down with an expert. So I am so excited to dive deep into this topic and just share your knowledge with everybody. So before we get to everything that you do now, let's go back in time and hear your story and your journey. What is your relationship to the wolf and how did you get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have a very sentimental attachment to the American West. My family moved out here into the Intermountain Rockies in the mid 1800s. So for six generations, my family's been out here. They came across the Great Plains as Mormon pioneers. and. We're really the first Euro-Americans to settle the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, as well as down through central and southern Utah. So this is a place that I call home, and it means a lot to me. I've never actually even been east of the Rockies. So I, I want to live really here forever. Ever? Yeah. I mean, I've been to Europe, but in, in terms of the U.S., no, I haven't been outside of the That's Rockies good. themselves. So
0: <laughs> <It's> amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh, I did not know that.
1: Yeah, I guess if someone gives me a reason to leave the Rockies, then maybe I'll try somewhere else. But, yeah, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. I don't blame Um, you. I'm
0: not not leaving, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, um, yeah, anyway, my family has, you know, lived here for multiple generations, worked on railroads, mining, farming, ranching. So I just have a really deep, intrinsic connection to the landscape. And wildlife... And wolves are a part of that connection. So my family and the Yellowstone ecosystem, they're very divided about how they feel about wolves. It's a very controversial topic. I've got family members that hate wolves. I've got family members that hunt wolves. I've got family members that don't think they're so bad. And I remember when I was five years old, when wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone in central Idaho. And being five, I didn't understand what the hype was about. I just know that there was a lot of wolf paraphernalia all of a sudden in Yellowstone. A lot of people are talking about wolves. My family were talking about wolves. And that made a lasting impact on me. I was I was very impressed by, I guess, wolf hysteria, starting at a young age. And, you know, like most five-year-old kids, I thought wolves were cool. I didn't know anything about them biologically, ecologically, but, you know, it's it's a cool animal and and I was attracted to them. I have worked in the Yellowstone ecosystem for 17 years. I began when I was 15, working in the backcountry. country. So I kind of grew up in a very traditional, Western, rugged, American, individualistic kind of community. And this relationship that we have, that we're proud to have with wildlife, elk, bison, bears, and wolves, kind of was a part of my identity. And as I grew older, I began to realize just how much I had taken for granted growing up, that I lived in this pristine area. I grew up two miles from Yellowstone National Park, five miles from Grand Teton, and I didn't realize at the time just how special of an environment it was that I had grown in and and loved for most of my life. And Finally when I was in my late teens and then starting to go into college. I I really began to recognize just how unique my situation was and how Destitute a lot of the contiguous United States was for not having so much biodiversity in their backyard and it became something that I was uh, proud of Uh, I kind of used it as an identity cloak as a part of my heritage and I really Suddenly wanted to actually know what it was that I had at my fingertips. Um, I wanted to learn about the ecosystem, about predators, and and about ungulates and other wildlife. I actually was more interested in bears, because grizzly bears were more problematic as far as like depredation and threats went where I grew up. And as I began to appreciate just how cool my situation was, I began to understand that there are multiple ways that we can tackle the challenges that we're faced with in terms of biodiversity loss. One of those might be uh, protecting large mammal migration routes, but another one, and probably the more uh, hysterical one, is coexisting with large carnivores trying to figure out how people can actually live with things that can cause a lot of damage and even threaten life. And that just was very attractive to me. I wanted to, to figure out how people could coexist. And I thought with my upbringing and my background, I had a unique perspective. So, yeah, I started to try and push bear opportunities. Uh, but getting into the field of large carnivore research is extremely challenging, very difficult. And actually, really, uh, by default, wolf research opened up. And it was because where I was with my background on the landscape uh, there was a, a research opportunity to pursue as far as graduate school went, collaborating with Yellowstone National Park, looking at wolves in the park's interior, which is kind of an unknown for a lot of the Yellowstone research. Most of Yellowstone's wolf population is in the northeastern part of the park where you can observe wolves from the road as far as what wolves were doing, their territories, their ranges, their reproduction in the park's interior, just a lot more question marks there. And I had backcountry experience working specifically in that part of Yellowstone. So, yeah, I kind of got my foot in the door. And fortunately, I had lots of field experience. I'm comfortable sleeping under the stars and getting bit by mosquitoes all night long. So I did a master's degree on wolves, their reproduction and territory persistence in a high-risk, low-resource area. And that opened up further research opportunities in collaboration with other states, including Idaho Fish and Game, Wyoming Game and Fish, as well as uh, a continuation of my affiliation with Yellowstone National Park as a graduate research technician. And now I'm working on a doctorate at Utah State University studying wolf patterns spatially and behaviorally on an anthropocentric landscape.
0: That was awesome. I mean, it's just like no wonder. Thank you for taking us through that entire step of what led you to today. And I want to just take a couple steps back for a second to really dive deep into this moment when you decided to take a right turn when you could have taken a left. So you told us that your family has, some of them, very negative views of wolves and some of them, you know, neutral or even positive. Why did you go... In the positive route what was it about it that you were like i actually want to study these animals instead of consuming them in in form of hunting or something like that so what do you think it was and also too if you wouldn't mind if you wouldn't mind how did your family react when they heard that you were <laughs> going to be studying wolves <laughs> versus hunting them
1: um I don't think my family is opposed to me doing anything. In fact, my my parents are great. They're extremely supportive. Um, they might think I'm a little bit nuts for <laughs> spending all of my time and energy on something that is not as quite meaningful to them as it is to me, but so that's probably how all parents feel to their about their children's issues to some degree. Uh, for me, though, I think I can answer your question going back a little bit further. And this is a topic that I'm gonna hit on a lot today, which is humans are a storytelling species. Despite the science, the facade of data and numbers, and we like to pretend that we like things orderly, and we want things to make sense. Ultimately, what makes our species unique is our storytelling. And at the end of the day, it's the stories that matter most, in our values, and those values Those worldviews, those narratives that we tell ourselves, they're the most precious thing. And so I'm not going to try and beat around the bush here, but I'll tell you that the reason why I decided I wanted to research wolves is because I came to the realization that I like wild things and I like wild places. And I wish I could give people maybe a more monetary or economic metric to, to measure and value the The worth of a wolf but for me it comes down to the fact that in an anthropocentric world where most of us are living and interacting with one another virtually most people don't get to see wild things like elk they don't get to hear them bugle most of them don't get out into the forests. it's not at your backyard door it's not right there for you to get out and, and appreciate and wolves I mean sure they've got a lot of incredible charisma. But one of the things that they mean most to me about is a symbol of of wildness, wildness, wildness that is quickly disappearing in this modern world and having grown up again in the Yellowstone area and appreciating just how cool of an experience that that is having kids of my own. I want that wilderness propagated as much as possible. Um, I know it's not practical or even possible, but if I could stamp my fingers and have as much biodiversity today as we had during the Pleistocene with woolly mammoths and woolly rhinoceros and saber-toothed cats, I'm that kind of guy. I like as much wildness as possible, and I, I think if we can propagate wild populations of animals, that's awesome, and so I'm going to work hard for that.
0: Mm. I love that you bring that up. So every once in a while, I'll do a solo episode on a topic that I really love. And the whole namesake of this podcast is the rewilding movement, you know, rewildology. And one of the top factors, which no wonder why I'm so attracted to it, is the idea of restoring ecosystems to the point that they can have apex predators back on the land. Because if you have an apex predator that's thriving, then that's a really good indicator that the entire ecosystem is thriving the way it used to as well. And I think it goes a line like that. You know, when you have a thriving wolf pack, then that means that everything else has to be in line enough for them to be alive and thriving and having pups and going on to the next generation. Because all the other factors, they're the first things to go, naturally or human interventions, we'll just say. Um, the apex predators are the first ones to go. So, oh, yes. You're just speaking to my heart. I absolutely love <laughs> it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Especially growing where I did, where there are no predators. And then to see what the devastation is on white-tailed deer doing to the areas and stuff, it's, it's just, I mean, okay, for example, my grandpa would never say, I love you. And when we would leave his house, he would say, watch for deer. That was his, I love you. Goodbye. It was no, yeah, it was never. Oh, I love you. No, nope, no, nope, no. Nope. Watch for deer, <laughs> and if any of my family listens to this episode, they're gonna totally laugh because it's such the truth. But okay, so let's get back to you. um Actually, let's get to the wolves themselves. Let's just start diving deep into this topic because this, the Rewildology audience, is all over the world and all across the U.S. And maybe not everyone knows exactly the history of the American wolf. So. Could you do almost like a natural history 101, the the history with humans, and also what species we're talking about? Because also people might not know that there's more than one species here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, just word vomit facts and wolf stuff on us. I I would love that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Fortunately, wolves have An incredible reputation unfortunately some of this reputation leads to misinformation because everyone thinks that they're a wolf expert wolves historically have had the greatest terrestrial distribution of any mammal on earth except for humans so basically anywhere in the northern hemisphere once upon a time you could find wolves which explains why they have such an indelible impact on the human psyche because People all across the Northern Hemisphere have stories about wolves, cultures have been influenced by wolves, history has been influenced by wolves and coexistence. So it doesn't matter whether you're from Asia, Europe, or North America, wolves are somehow interconnected to your cultural narratives. Wolves are a very fascinating species, but I think to kind of take the romance out of them a little bit, they are essentially dogs, or rather dogs are essentially wolves. In fact, if you have a dog or you're a dog person, you probably know 60 to 80% about wolf biology already. The history of the wolf, the deep history, is that canids evolved here in North America. And then through biotic interchange, the progenitor to the modern wolf actually crossed over into Eurasia where it evolved and became the wolf that we would recognize today, Canis lupus. And then over millennia, wolves came back over here into North America. So for the North American audience, one of the closest relatives that we have here on the continent to the wolf would be the coyote or the coyote, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Coyotes, though, evolved solely here in North America. So it's an American animal. Um, there's about a 60, or excuse me, a 96% genetic overlap between a wolf and a coyote, which to put that into perspective is like an orangutan and a human. So they're closely related, they're cousins, but they're not as close as you might think. We do have another species of wolf actually here in North America, Canis rufus. And this is a highly contended uh, subject, but the red wolf evolved here in the Americas as well alongside the coyote so uh, according to some of the best genetic research that we have to date Canis rufus which historically inhabited southeastern United States is a distinct species it's a lot smaller and more coyote like anyway Uh, it's highly endangered today you know you've got two dozen left in the Carolinas and that's about it but Canis lupus or the wolf that we all are familiar with has an incredible range throughout the British Isles once upon a time, throughout Scandinavia, down through the Arabian Peninsula, all the way through Siberia and Japan, and then of course from uh, Alaska through Canada, down through central Mexico, and essentially ranging from the Pacific to the Atlantic in North America. So this huge terrestrial distribution. The reason why wolves are capable of having such a great range is because of their number one superpower. And that is their adaptability they are highly adaptive they can occupy just about any kind of environment or ecosystem from the deserts to the arctic and uh, their second superpower would be the ability to walk they can walk great distances it's not that these animals are incredible hunters and we can probably get into that later they're not super predators they're highly ineffective actually when it comes to preying on a lot of large ungulates like elk and moose and bison, but they're just good at living about anywhere that humans will tolerate them. And the problem historically has been that humans don't tolerate the wolf in many places. And this is pretty ironic because the wolf was the first animal that was ever domesticated by people. So starting in Eurasia 20 to 40,000 years ago, as far as our best uh, carbon dating goes, uh, wolves were being being domesticated by peoples. And uh, I think it's incredibly ironic that man's best friend is also man's worst enemy. We haven't ever truly forgiven those wolves that didn't come onto the, the light of our fire and eat from our hands. And we've kind of held it against them. And uh, if you will, but the, the domestic dog that we have today, Canis lupus familiaris, has essentially the same genetic sequencing as a wild wolf does. We just have greatly manipulated dog breeds through artificial selection. But the wolf itself, highly adaptive. They live in packs, which I think just about anyone knows, doesn't matter what degree of of wolf knowledge you have. Um, But packs are not gangs of wolves, which I think a lot of people tend to assume. Um, They are a cooperative breeding species, just like humans are, which means you have essentially uh, a breeding pair of adults and then several generations of offspring being the most basic and simple form of a a family unit. Now, of course, just like human family units, uh, you get a lot of diversity in terms of family group formations. So sometimes you have grandmas and grandpas living in the pack or you have uncles and aunts or you have adoptees coming into the pack. Wolves are primarily monogamous, but they're promiscuous, just like humans can be promiscuous as well. So they generally will have just one mate for life, um, but sometimes they breed with other wolves when there are other opportunities. They don't inter, excuse me, they don't inbreed. So they're very particular about spreading out and distributing themselves across the landscape when it comes time to finding a mate which is, again, advantageous to the wolf for extending its range and covering a huge, huge and various type of topography across North America and Eurasia. But wolves are, they're highly adaptive. They're very competitive with one another. Again, I think that's why we find them so interesting. Um, They are territorial. And a lot of species, we kind of use that term loosely saying that A grizzly bear has a territory, which in fact it it doesn't. Grizzly bears overlap on a home range, but wolves are territorial and they will defend their territory and their resources to the death. If it's not humans killing wolves, then generally it's wolves killing wolves. And because of their biology, wolves have short histories uh, when it comes to existing on this planet, individually speaking. Uh, a wolf generally meets its demise somewhere between two to five years old wow, although they I didn't can know live I was that young yeah yeah they can live to be 12 or 13 um, just like any big dog but they typically die quick because they're either killing each other or more likely humans are killing them or they're getting beat up by the big animals that they're hunting so if you imagine what life would be like if you're a hundred pound animal and you have to chase down a thousand pound elk, then catch it with your teeth and wrestle it to the ground. Injuries while hunting are pretty extensive and they can often be fatal. So we've documented everything from white-tailed deer killing wolves to, of course, big animals like moose and bison killing wolves as well. So. It's, it's a tough business being a wolf, which I think is again, one of the reasons why they're so fascinating to us as a species is our ancestors and also wolf researchers today acknowledge just how tenacious these animals are. They're tough and life is not easy on wolves, but nevertheless, they can adapt, they can persevere and they're also prolific. They're great at reproducing. They have one breeding cycle a year They typically will breed sometime around Valentine's Day and then they whelp around tax day, depending on the latitude. And a litter of pups is generally five or six and their survivability is relatively high. So they're prolific, which again helps the species in terms of their uh, ability to adapt to an ever-changing landscape.
0: As you were going through that, I just find it so fascinating. Just these animals are just so incredible. Almost every single thing you said, you could have changed wolf and said human and it would have been the exact same story as our ancestors, which I yeah. think is insanely cool. And just like you said, also very confusing on why throughout time we have hated and revered this this same species. I mean mm-hmm. it's documented well before we were even documenting anything. You know, before there was a written history that humans and wolves coexisted in their own ways, I guess you can say. (laughs) Which, which again, I do want to, just because I'm a biologist and I'm nerding out real hard right now, what is their success rate, their hunting success success rate?
1: Well, it depends on... (laughs) the population and the resources that are available so the most extensive research that we're aware of really has to do with Yellowstone National Park where you have well-documented predation on elk which is the primary prey species available to wolves in Yellowstone and for a pack of wolves the success rate of killing an elk a grown elk is about uh, less than 10%, 7 to 10%. But when you consider elk calves in addition to adults, uh, success rates for killing increases to about 20%. Um, And then when you consider bison, which is another large animal and prey source that wolves can consume in Yellowstone National Park, the success rates are much lower, below 10%. And again, that's just because the animal is so large. Wolves, again, being so adaptive, it depends on where they live, um, which will determine what they consume. So you have populations of wolves that only consume bison because that's all there is to eat on Isle Royale, um, which is in uh, Michigan. They only consume moose because that's all there is to eat. And in the Midwest, you get a lot of deer and in the Rockies, it's primarily elk. Uh, It's just the perfect package. To hunt a buffalo is more dangerous than hunting an elk. And an elk is just the right amount of meat to feed a pack, whereas a deer might be a little bit smaller, which means you have to kill more frequently.
0: Mm. Thanks for that. Because like I said, most of my knowledge is on African big cats. And so to hear a 7 to 8% for a pack animal on adults, it just seems so low.
1: It's pretty, yeah, it's, it's pretty
0: incredible. I mean, big cats, I mean, even single cats, just, just them on themselves have a higher percentage than not. So I had no idea that it was that low.
1: Yeah, it's tough, which is why again, wolves often will target younger animals or older animals, which are more vulnerable. Um, so calves are a target species for most predators just because they're easier to kill and for a cursorial predator like a wolf, an animal that has to chase down its prey uh, compared to ambushing it like a mountain lion, um, it's just a lot easier to go for the weak and relatively the unexpecting.
0: That makes sense, that makes sense. Oh, my next question I forgot about for a second. So, are these statistics similar to what they see in Canada, perhaps? And are they managed the same? Have those wolves had a similar history as the U.S.? Or I guess this would be a really great segue into what has happened to wolves in in the United States and I guess how it might compare across uh, North America as well. Um, But first, I just asked you ten questions. First. (laughs) <laughs> is this similar in Canada and then maybe let's start to get into the political side of wolves and their history in the United States
1: <laughs> yeah so um, wolf predation or any predation of any large carnivore is like the number one question that people want to find out about right and I think this dovetails perfectly in, with what you do want to talk about which is not just the natural history of this animal, but the human history of this animal as well, which with wolves being the first animal ever domesticated, you can't talk about wolves without talking about human history. Wolves sometimes uh, can prey upon uh, a prey species to the point that it negatively affects that population. And this is not just seen with wolves, it's seen with all predators, right? It's called additive predation. So unfortunately, it's not all simplified and and disney-esque as some people want us to believe carnivores can negatively impact a prey source a prey population and in some areas kill rates are a lot higher and that's for multiple reasons we could explain that sometimes you have predator pits where it's not just wolves preying on elk or or reindeer or caribou or whatever you have Sometimes you have mountain lions, you also have grizzly bears that are impacting the population as a whole. Sometimes you have humans thrown into that matrix too, because we're definitely predators and we can really impact a prey population if we're not careful, Um, especially if we're doing antlerless hunts, which in some situations are a positive thing or a good thing. But as humans, if we're harvesting adult breeding females in an elk population, then Obviously, that's additive predation. You're removing an individual from that population that otherwise would have survived at least another year. Um, And disease is another thing. Some prey populations get disease. You can look at studies in the Sierra Nevadas with desert bighorn sheep getting sick from pneumonia, and you've got mountain lions that are really knocking those sheep populations down because they can't can't juggle the impacts of uh, a Eurasian disease and a predator, a native predator. So again, additive predation sometimes happens. It just depends on the location. But overall, we have what's called compensatory predation. So wolves evolved with all of these animals that we're talking about. They evolved with elk. Which runs faster, which has more endurance? Well, it depends on the, on the day, really, you know? Uh, if the wolf was always faster and stronger than the elk, then there wouldn't be any more elk. If the elk was always stronger and faster than the wolf, there wouldn't be any more wolves. So it's this arms race that we see, and it really just depends on the region, the habitat, and the health of the prey and predator populations. But documentation of predators impacting prey, and more specifically impacting livestock, which don't have that prey reflex, have been on record for millennia and humans have always had conflicts with predators. So it's not just a modern American, Western biopolitical problem, this, this coexistence issue that we have with wolves. In fact, the first documented bounty on wolves was recorded in ancient Greece in the sixth century BC. What? Yeah. So people have had a hard time coexisting with predators for millennia and wolves in particular. I mentioned at the beginning of this that wolves used to have a distribution across all of Eurasia as well as North America, but they were eradicated from the British Isles and in the 18th century. Um, they were eradicated from Japan through most of really modern Europe and modern Asia. And just a few small populations uh, here and there were able to persist in modern Europe, modern Asia, and also modern North America, which is why I think by default we begin to associate the wolf with wilderness, which is not wholly accurate. I've explained hopefully adequately enough that the wolf is highly adaptive. It can live just about anywhere. People are always frustrated at the ever expanding population and range of coyotes in North America. Coyotes are a magnificent species that can really live just about anywhere. Wolves are similar. We have wolves living through Rome, Italy. We have Rome, We have uh, wolves living in Germany, Portugal. Uh, they're living, of course, in Siberia, but as well as Scandinavia. They're able to recolonize population areas or historic ranges just depending on human tolerance and where we choose to let them live. But... Humans, again, have had this big love and hate relationship with wolves for a long time. And even in North America, some indigenous tribes, they practiced wolf killing to the point of eradicating small populations in order to propagate prey species. So it's not always hunky-dory and full of love, but it really wasn't until Europeans started to settle America and began to colonize westward, where we started to see wolf eradication at an incredibly rapid rate. And specifically in North America, uh, things got really aggressive after the demise of a lot of our ungulate populations. So we had millions of bison roaming across North America. We had millions of elk and pronghorn and other ungulate species. And as we removed those, And replace those native wildlife species with livestock naturally we have a lot of hungry predators that are going to start attacking livestock and so at the end of the 1800s depredation on livestock was a real challenge for these people who were coming out west and my family were some of those people and it's not that these people were malicious or malevolent it's just they didn't have an understanding of the natural world and of the ecosystem and to them some animals were worthless and some animals had value livestock had value and you had things like elk and bison which competed with your livestock for grazing and you also had things like bears and wolves and lions that killed your livestock and so what do you do you get rid of them so beginning in 1915 the US government created a Bureau of Biological Survey, which worked to eradicate predators, specifically the wolf from the West. And again, it's not that we hadn't been doing this for millennia, it's just that our methods got very, very effective. Primarily, the use of poison is what killed off the wolf. So people have been trapping and shooting wolves for a long time, but as soon as we started to implement poison control, that's when we were able to successfully annihilate all of our wolves in the lower 48 states with the exception of a small population on the Canada border over in Minnesota.
0: So were they using bait essentially? That was just, okay, with poison in it?
1: Yeah, hmm. so a lot a lot of the times it was strychnine. Um, other poisons like 1080 was developed. But when wolf pelts were valuable um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of times you just shoot a buffalo or shoot an elk, and then you'd uh, lace the meat with poison, and then you'd wait a few days and go back and pick up the bodies that were there.
0: Good God. Oh, that's such a graphic. Just just thinking about that. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm a conservationist, so <laughs> other people are just like, fuck yeah, look at all those dead wolves, and I'm just like, Bleh! <laughs> I'm just like crying. Um, yeah, poison is just such a nasty, nasty way to kill wildlife. It mm-hmm. just is... And it's still used today. I mean, that's why a lot of our vultures and a lot of our just decomposing meat eaters are having such a hard time. is because of poison. So the fact that people were doing that on wolves, I had no idea. So, oh my gosh, that just sucks. So, okay, so this was 1915. It sounds mm-hmm. like our, the past people were hell efficient at getting rid of the wolf, as we all know. So let's fast forward in time to the 90s. What happened? Why were wolves reintroduced? What is like the sequence of events of pure hate for a long, long time? And how did we get to this point where we actually wanted to reintroduce them? Like, why did we even do that? Where did they come from? And what was that political situation that came after that? Because that political situation, I'm sure, heavily influenced what's been going on recently. So Mm -hmm. if you could give us a little bit of context of just what happened between 1950 and the 1990s, that would be fantastic.
1: Yeah. Well, like I already mentioned once, humans like stories. And whether we admit it or not, we also have values and worldviews that essentially affect how we manage the world. Wolves were public enemy number one at the beginning of the 1900s. And the government worked very effectively at eradicating wolves and other predators throughout the West. And by the 1960s, there weren't any wolves left. And people began to question whether or not we had done the right thing. I want to point out, too, that when people were eradicating wolves in the early 1900s, not everyone was on board with it. Um, A lot of very influential biologists, Um, ecology was a new discipline at the time, but folks who were in ecology like uh, Aldo Leopold, the Muri brothers, Olas and Adolf Muri, they were concerned about how we were managing predators and they were critical of the government's approach, but without a lot of scientific backing to explain what might happen if we did take away predators. From the landscape but collectively the nation began to question man we're losing wildness we're losing things of aesthetic value and we humans are responsible for the demise of a lot of this loss so in the 1970s bipartisan uh, laws were passed including the endangered species act which was passed in 1973 which basically said hey it's immoral for people to stand by while a species is imperiled and goes extinct. And so it's our responsibility to work to mitigate the extinction of species wherever is possible. And in 1974, wolves were listed as being regionally extinct or threatened in the lower 48 states. Now, this is important for everyone to realize is that globally, wolves have never been on the verge of going extinct, which is one of the reasons why there's a lot of conflict because People have still had a lot of animosity towards wolves, and they say, why are we protecting a species that is abundant in Northern Canada and Siberia? Uh, It's not globally going extinct, it's just regionally been eradicated, and they argue for good reason. You know, it's, it's threatening my livestock and my livelihood. We should get rid of them. But anyway, in 1974, the US decided that wolves in the lower 48 states Um, needed to be protected, and they ought to be restored wherever possible. And this is why we developed a criteria of where wolves could be restored and brought back. I told you already that wolves lived from central Mexico all the way up to the Arctic, from Pacific to Atlantic. They lived everywhere. So why did we choose the northern Rockies? Why did we create the northern Rocky Mountain uh, Recovery Plan? Well, It's because the Northern Rockies fit the bill in two ways. One, the Northern Rockies had enough prey available for wolves to consume. Other places like Kansas, Ohio, even Texas, they didn't have enough wild prey to adequately meet the needs of a recovering wolf population. Uh, We'd systematically eradicated not only the predators, but also we disrupted a lot of the prey and the second reason why we chose the northern rockies is because there were fewer people wolves cause problems it's it's a fact of life that carnivores are difficult to live with you can be a big wolf advocate but if you're going to be pragmatic and a realist you have to admit that they can be challenging to live with and so we can't just restore them anywhere because people are going to be upset about it so where can we put them where there's A low chance of conflict with humans and where can we put them where they're going to eat native prey? And we chose the Northern Rockies. Historically, the Northern Rockies have been a place where not a lot of people have lived. Uh, The reason why is because up until the last 50 years or so, people had to make a living outside. And in the Northern Rockies, if you're farming and ranching, it's a tough place to make a living why my family as mormon pioneers picked it because they didn't want to be bothered by anyone so all of that has since changed and we'll get into this in just a minute um because now we can build an office and work indoors and we never have to go outside and we have heaters and air conditioners but yeah the northern rockies just seemed like a great place to to put wolves and so the u.s fish and wildlife service created a recovery plan which included northwestern montana which is is Glacier National Park, essentially, as well as Central Idaho, which is where the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness is. That's the largest wilderness area in the lower 48 states. And then Yellowstone National Park. So three essentially different metapopulations that we would restore to the landscape. Now, I'm oversimplifying a very complicated story because this was in 1974 that we listed the wolf. In 1987, we created the plan. But people, especially locals, were very upset at the idea of restoring wolves to an area that they had just a generation before worked very hard to to eradicate these animals. So there was a lot of opposition. And during this time, conveniently perhaps, wolves actually began to tiptoe across the Canadian line into the United States from Alberta And in the 1980s, wolves naturally recolonized northwestern Montana. So one of those three recovery sites that we had previously picked. Boom, suddenly you've got wolves coming down on their own, no human intervention. That's the best case scenario, right? Because at the very least, you're not spending tax dollars to bring wolves in. And studies have shown that people are more tolerant when nature acts versus when big brother government acts. And so, Wolves started to come down into Montana. That was great. Uh, We decided to wait and debate about whether or not we should let wolves continue to trickle down and see if they'd make it all the way to Yellowstone. But ultimately, the decision was made in the mid-90s that, nope, it would take too long. There's still too much animosity towards the wolf. Uh, We need to bring wolves back down and uh, restore them to these two other locations. So in 1995, In 1996, uh, we caught a total of 66 wolves in Alberta and British Columbia over the two years and released them at these two sites. So 31 wolves were released in Yellowstone National Park and and 35 wolves released into central Idaho. And from those wolves, you have your wolf population today. So 66 wolves over a two-year reintroduction phase and wolves being highly dynamic, able to adapt to a new, and in particular an unexploited uh, environment where elk and deer populations were abnormally high, no other wolves to compete with. They were protected at first by the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, so they took off. And as I already said, wolves are highly prolific. Um, Given the right environment, the right habitat, the right resources, they can increase at a mean rate of 20% every year, which is huge. That's huge.
0: I had no idea.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So because of that, um, they actually met the delisting requirements by the early 2000s, 2002, I think. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service said, hey, it's, it's time to delist but folks were not all convinced that that number, which we had placed in the Northern Rocky Mountains, which was uh, about 150 wolves for each state, uh, Yellow, excuse me, Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, they were unconvinced that that was enough to have a viable population. And so legal battles back and forth, finally in 2011, um, attached to a congressional rider, wolves were delisted in the Northern Rocky Mountain states, at least Idaho and and Montana. And then in 2017, they were delisted in Wyoming. So while we were fighting and hashing it out over whether wolves should be protected or not, their population continued to grow. And it grew well above the basement objectives for delisting. And at the beginning of 2021, there was an estimated 1,500 wolves in Idaho, 1,100 wolves in Montana, about 300 wolves in Wyoming, and that's with a harvest. So during the last few years, people have been harvesting 30 to 35 percent of the wolves out of the state annually. But again, wolves are dynamic, and so they're able to take that hit and continue to to grow and remain stable on the landscape.
0: So, I'm really grateful that you just brought this up. So technically they were delisted because of this rider that happened in 2011. Did I hear that correctly? Mm -hmm. Okay, so then that means that the management of these populations were then put on the states, Mm -hmm. correct? Okay, so then what happened after that? So now it's up to the states to decide how these populations are managed. And so I'm assuming that every single state had their own plan what happened after that? And then if you will also, I guess maybe this might be a bigger question on how maybe wildlife is just managed in general in mm-hmm. this country. Maybe you could shed some light on that because I think that'll really set the grounds for having a conversation to what's happened in the past 24 months. So maybe, yeah. yeah, just just educate us a little bit more on all of this and then let's get into what's happened recently.
1: Yeah, so let's put a pause on wolves. I'm glad you stopped me there. So if you live in the United States, it's very important for you to understand how we manage wildlife. Most people, even wildlife advocates, don't understand how wildlife is managed. So let's break it down. Uh, When the Founding Fathers were setting up our nation, wildlife was not what they were thinking about. They were concerned about national security, setting up an economy. So wildlife was was not on their radar. So by default, through the 10th Amendment, um, which states that basically anything that isn't included in the Constitution will be managed at a state level. By default, it is the states that are responsible for managing and protecting wildlife. So each state, it doesn't matter whether you live in Rhode Island, Hawaii, Texas, or Montana, each state has its own wildlife agency. Generally, they're fish and game agencies, but to make things just really confusing, each state has the own name, their own unique name for a wildlife agency. So in Montana, it's Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. In Colorado, it's Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Idaho is Idaho Fish and Game. Wyoming is Wyoming Game and Fish, et cetera, et cetera. So each state is responsible for managing its wildlife. And again, it really wasn't until the late 1800s when we began to realize that we were mismanaging wildlife. And this is in part because of uh, capitalization on wildlife for monetary gain. So in the early 1800s, we passed what's known as the Public Trust Doctrine, which makes, I think, the United States a really cool place to live if you're an advocate of biodiversity Anyone and everyone owns wildlife. It doesn't matter if you have a deer in your backyard, that is not your deer. That deer belongs to the public at large. And we have to have a government responsible for managing the wildlife on behalf of the public at large. But because the deer and the bison belong to everyone, you had market hunting in the 1800s where all you gotta do is have a gun and some bullets And you can make yourself a good living by going out on the plains and shooting animals and then selling the meat or selling the the hides. So in the late 1800s, fortunately, we started to create policing agencies, fish and game agencies that work to protect wildlife. Suddenly you have to buy a hunting license in order to go hunting. You gotta buy a fishing license in order to go fishing. Um, That way we can control the populations for not just current generations, but future generations. So everywhere in the United States, wildlife is managed at a state level. There are a couple of exceptions. One is we have Migratory Bird Treaty Acts. So birds migrate and in the early 1900s, we decided to create an act that protects birds that migrate. And the federal government helps oversee the migratory bird populations in the United States. We've also created species of special status. So it doesn't matter what the population is doing like, we decided as a nation that they're charismatic enough for us to not hunt them. Um, Those are like your marine mammals, um, your wild horse and wild burrow populations, and your golden eagle and bald eagle populations. So those are always and forever protected because they're charismatic. And then we created the Endangered Species Act. So whenever a population is deemed imperiled, the federal government, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, steps in to help manage that population in tandem with the states. That's how it should be. They should cooperate together to try and bring this imperiled species back to a point of recovery. The mission is, once the population is no longer threatened or imperiled, management of the species goes back to the states the states have to have some kind of proactive management plan to make sure that 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 species doesn't go extinct or imperiled once again. So wolves were protected as a a threatened species, actually, not as an endangered species, but they were an experimental threatened species. They were brought down here into the lower 48 states. They were co-managed with oversight by the federal government. And then once the population seemed like it was stable, then management went back to the states on the condition that the state had a valid and an acceptable management plan saying this is what we're going to do to make sure that wolves don't go extinct in our state so we've got a basement objective of 150 wolves per state it's actually 100 but we give a 50% or excuse me a, a 50 wolves as a as a base estimate for miscounting so 150 wolves per each state and uh the states are responsible for making sure that the wolves don't go extinct and they're not mismanaged. So that is why in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming wolves are not managed at a federal level. They're managed at a state level, which is how it should be when wildlife is managed correctly.
0: Oh, you just enlightened so many things. So many things just clicked in my brain. <laughs> but we're going to we're going to go through everything. It just clicked in my head. Because, um, again, I've been following this very, very closely. So people are like, what do you mean, Brooke? We're going to get to what I mean. So what happened a couple years ago? Why are wolves being decimated in the Northern Rockies?
1: Well, to answer your question, I need to point out that wolves have been re recovering elsewhere in the United States, not just in the Northern Rockies. I mentioned earlier that wolves in Northern Minnesota had never been eradicated. And when wolves became protected by the federal government and hunting was off limits, the wolf population around the Great Lakes has been growing a lot. So in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, you actually have more wolves there than you have in the Northern Rockies. So there is a very robust population of wolves in the the Great Lakes states. Wolves have also dispersed into Washington and Oregon. So wolves in Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon are technically delisted, but the states continue to manage them as a species of special status. So they're not being hunted over there, but you do have growing populations in the Pacific Northwest. And wolves are born to walk, right? That's one of their superpowers. So you put a radio call on a wolf and it'll walk a thousand miles in less than a year. They just, they move. They do a really good job of it. So we've had wolves occasionally dispersing through Utah. We actually have a wolf pack right now in northwestern Colorado, which is an interesting subject. Maybe we can talk about later. Oh,
0: we're getting to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm in Colorado, so we are talking about okay. that. So, <laughs> But first, keep going.
1: And, and then... Um, we have wolves in the Southwest in Arizona and New Mexico that were actually reintroduced in 1998 as a part of the Mexican gray wolf recovery program. And I probably should have hit this earlier, but it's important to realize that because wolves have such a great distribution, because they're so adaptive, that just like people, you don't actually have a lot of differentiation between species and subspecies. So one of the biggest arguments that I get from people who are opposed to wolves is they say that we've reintroduced the wrong wolf to the northern Rockies. It's the wrong species. It's bigger, it's meaner, it's nastier. And because that's they're Canadian? Is that Because why? they're Canadian, yeah. Uh... So, so I know when people are, when they hate wolves if they say it's those damned Canada greys. I know what kind of of person my audience belongs to uh, (laughs) if, if they're starting to talk like that. And it's very important for us to realize and recognize that wolves actually are more like a monophyletic clade, which is just a complicated way of saying that there's no barrier on the landscape that is gonna stop one population from breeding with another population. And because they move so much, you don't get distinct species because there's no isolated populations for extended periods of time. So the best you could maybe argue is that at the extreme distal ends of their range, you have some phenotypic, some physical characteristics that are different than in other areas. So if you think about your Arctic wolf, right, up north on those beautiful... Uh, nature documentaries. It's still a wolf. Technically. It's still canis lupus. It's it's a gray wolf It's just the subspecies So in the southwest we have the Mexican gray wolf We just often call it the Mexican wolf, but it's still canis lupus canis lupus baileyi. It's a subspecies It's slightly smaller because it adapted in the desert versus you know living off of elk and bison in the Rockies etc. But Everywhere you go, it's essentially one species. A wolf here in Montana is the same as a wolf in Scandinavia. It's the same species. It's just like humans. You can't say that an American is a different species than a Scandinavian. We're all the same species because we're capable of moving great distances and interbreeding. So the average wolf is about a hundred pounds. That's the size of a wolf here in the Northern Rockies. If you go down into the southwest, it's about 80 or 90 pounds, slightly smaller, again, because it's adapted to its environment. That was all a tangent, but I think it's important to realize that the wolf, when I'm speaking about the wolf, I'm talking about wolves all across America. They've, They've been recovering, they're growing in their populations, and outside of the northern Rockies, wolves have continued to be listed as a threatened species or a recovering species. So even though the population is greater in the Great Lake States, they have continued to be protected by the Endangered Species Act. Now, this changed when in uh, January 5th, 2021, wolves were delisted everywhere from the United States. So everywhere, wolves were suddenly removed from the protective status that the ESA creates. This doesn't include the Mexican wolf population, which is still a recovering population. But everywhere else, they're suddenly delisted. And as a biologist, I have to admit that I want states to manage wolves because that means that they are recovering. And I think that that's how the system ought to work, especially for a species that is as dynamic, as the wolf. And when you look at the Midwestern states, I would argue that their population is sufficient to have them be delisted. But just barely, on February 10th of 2022, a federal judge overruled the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and said that, nope, wolves need to be relisted as a threatened species because there are too many loose definitions in terms of recovery, which is why the Endangered Species Act is problematic, right? I love the Endangered Species Act, but there are some gray areas, some technical terms that we really need to define better. And one of those terms is recovery. What does recovery mean? Is it X, the population is no longer threatened of going extinct, is that recovered? Is it Y, it has re-inhabited all of its historic range? is it Z it's now occupying all of its possible current range, right? Because let's be honest, we're not going to have grizzly bears living everywhere that they used to live because human disruption of the environment is so great that it's an impossibility wolves to the same degree. You can't have a a solid wolf population in many States anymore just because the resources are not there. And the, the possibility of human conflict is too great. So, how we're getting nitpicky, right? When we go back and forth and that's this, this terrible whipsaw that we're experiencing in terms of wolf legality of, and, and defining how they're protected or not protected. So anyway, wolves everywhere in the lower 48 states were relisted as uh, a species to be protected by the Endangered Species Act on February 10th, 2022. That does not include the distinct population segment that's known as the Northern Rocky Mountains. So that's Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, and actually Northern Utah, even though there aren't any wolves in Northern Utah. So wolves in these areas, and again, I'm gonna just emphasize the three states, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, they are still managed at a state level. So you can still hunt and trap wolves there. You can't do that anywhere else in the United States. Um, you with me so far?
0: Oh yeah. Oh okay. yeah. We're getting to the juicy part. Okay. So,
1: <laughs> so, when wolves were first restored to the Northern Rockies, I mentioned that there was a basement objective. Each state had to have at least a hundred wolves, and then they added fifty wolves to be a buffer because when you're doing population counts, you have to you have to take into account that you might miscount. There might be an, an, an error when you're doing your census. So 150 wolves for each state, that's 450 wolves in the Northern Rockies in order for them to be delisted. For some people, that's inadequate. That's not enough. We should have more wolves. They could be recovered in more areas, right? And for other people, that is as much as they will give. They don't want one more wolf than 150 in their state. And again, this goes back to human values. And I have to, I have to be careful here because I really understand and respect what a lot of my family and friends that are opposed to wolves believe, which is, Hey, the federal government brought wolves back into my backyard. Why didn't they put them somewhere else? I didn't want them here. And you can't tell me that my granddad was wrong when he said wolves were evil and problematic. So I don't want wolves here, but the government did it anyway. And so this individual feels disempowered and frustrated. And the wolf becomes more than just an animal, despite being a a biological entity. It becomes a symbol, a part of this greater narrative that the wolf is something that threatens my way of life. It threatens my future, which I think is ironic because you have two competing interests. Wolf advocates are concerned about the future of biodiversity and wildness. And then anti-wolfers are afraid of disempowerment and losing what they value, which is a historic way of life, their heritage, ranching and control over their lands. So these two competing paradigms conflict over whether wolves should be there or not, and especially over how many wolves should be there. So while people are fighting, wolves are doing their thing. And wolves are very, again, prolific, very adaptive. They can take a hit. In fact, I would not consider the wolf recovery program to be successful without the biological advantage that we have from wolves. Wolves are doing most of the heavy lifting. They're doing what wolves do. They move and they breed, and that's why they're being successful. So the wolf population grows. The states then get control, and they, they issue hunting and trapping. And as unsavory as this might be to some people in the audience here, I cannot see any way that we can possibly manage a predator species as adaptive as the wolf without hunting and trapping, especially when we're managing its prey through hunting. It doesn't make sense for us to limit the number of deer and elk on the landscape, but not limit the number of predators that can just as easily subsist off of your cattle and your your pets even because again these animals can they can move into urban areas and they can live in in the shadows and cause problems just like coyotes so as unsavory as it might be for some people who disagree with trophy hunting I just don't think there is realistically a way we can coexist with these predators that are so prolific without some kind of human intervention and most of the time that reverts to hunting right some kind of lethal control So the states begin to open up hunting and trapping. And at first it's fairly basic. You buy a tag, it's relatively cheap. But to hunt a wolf is extremely challenging. To trap one is even harder. And so most people are going out and buying hunting and trapping licenses, but the success rate is not so great that it negatively impacts the wolf population. So the states begin to liberalize the ways that you can harvest. They start to remove different things like quotas, which is in this area of the state, you can only shoot five wolves and then there's no more wolf hunting in the season. They start to do away with things like that because the quotas are never being met because wolves are so challenging to hunt. Wyoming is a little bit unique and actually it gets a really bad rep, but I really respect Wyoming their wildlife biologists, I mean, for, for at least staying consistent, which is the problem that we're seeing here in Idaho and Montana. And I'll get to this right now, actually. So Idaho is and Montana are constantly changing the methods and the means that can be used for hunting and trapping wolves, because no matter what they're doing, they're always playing catch up and the wolves continue to expand. Then suddenly, In 2021, the Idaho and Montana legislatures decide that they're going to take things into their own hand. They're going to now initiate bills which mandate that the state's fish and game agencies allow for radical and I would even say draconian methods of wolf harvest in order to try and greatly reduce the overall wolf population. So these methods include hunting at night, using night vision goggles, chasing animals down and running them over with four-wheelers or snowmobiles or trucks. In some places, hunting over bait, snaring seasons are greatly extended, um, which overlaps into the whelping or the pup raising season. It also can disrupt other recovering species like grizzly bears because they overlap in these areas and you're going to catch a bear in your snare, whereas if you're only snaring in the wintertime, bears are hibernating. Basically, they just pulled the plug saying, hey, everything except poison is essentially illegal now, is legal now. So you can do whatever you want. Our objective is to reduce our population to as close as we can to the basement objective, which is 150. Now that's that's bad for a lot of reasons and as of right now i think north of 500 wolves five to 600 wolves have been harvested in the last i don't know seven or eight months that's a lot of wolves and the reason why is because the methods of harvest have been liberalized it's it's draconian and what's most frustrating for me is it's putting a black eye on ethical hunting which i know some people think that that's a paradox but i don't believe it is because humanity evolved to hunt and we've we've connected to nature for a long time through hunting but now you have people hunting unethically and it's causing a lot of problems for the rest of the hunting community and most frustrating of all is you've suddenly empowered politicians who are making they're they're practicing as biologists they're pretending to be biologists each state has its own wildlife agency which is responsible for managing its species, its its wildlife populations appropriately. And these states were adapting and they were doing a good job at managing their wolf population. They, in fact, in Idaho, they had just barely instituted new ways and longer seasons, more extended and more creative ways to try and mitigate wolf depredation and to control an expanding wolf population. But then the governor and the legislatures went in and they created what I think is an offense to the public trust doctrine. They didn't allow for any public processes to determine input, what the values of the people were, because again, the wildlife belongs to the people, not to any specific individual and not to, to a governor. And now it's, it's been dictated how wildlife will be managed, how wolves will be managed in Montana and Idaho. This opens up a whole bunch of problems, I think, for future wildlife management issues because the politicians are not practicing biologists, they're not scientists. I don't think that they should have the ability to usurp the public processes that, and the scientists' uh, knowledge and expertise to determine how wildlife will be managed. Wyoming is different because Wyoming actually created, an 85% of their state is a no-wolf zone which at the time seemed incredibly draconian. And to some people, it might still seem very, very draconian. Um, Wolves are only permitted to be in 15% of the state around the Jackson Hole and Grand Teton and Yellowstone area. Any wolf that leaves that part of the state can be shot on sight without a license. It's basically treated as as vermin. It's a predator-free zone, right? That seems malicious, but at least it's been consistent. So Wyoming has historically been able to maintain a relatively low wolf population about 300 wolves which includes the national parks and the wind river indian reservation and they only can harvest 40 to 50 wolves every year which again if you're anti-wolf hunting at all i'm never going to convince you that that's that's okay but you should at least be able to accept that that's more reasonable than open season mass slaughter on wolves in idaho and montana any time of year you can hunt you know pregnant females, pups, etc. cetera, the chaos and the craziness that is in Montana and Wyoming is just, it, it's hysterical. And at least Wyoming has been able to stay consistent and they have a season that is set during the latter half of the year where you're not hunting the pups, you're not hunting the pregnant females, and you have a quota. And once you've shot 40 or 50 wolves, there's no more hunting in the state. But now in Idaho and Montana, essentially it's open season, year round, any way you can get a wolf, you can get a wolf. And again, that, that visceral whiplash that goes back and forth of wolf management is extremely disruptive and very upsetting to biologists and to professionals who are trying to responsibly handle an issue that is already controversial.
0: I'm absorbing all of that. That was incredible. So, that is where the statistic came where you said all these headlines that Idaho and Montana plan to decimate their population by 90%. So, if their population was around 1,500 before, then they're trying to get to the 150 as before. Because if they do that, then it's going to be back under federal control, which they obviously don't want. So, they want to get it right to the point where they have absolutely no wolves. And, well, in their sense, they have the bare minimum wolf that big brother doesn't come in and take over, essentially, Mm -hmm. was the plan. That really helped. Thank you for clicking that in for me. Because I was like, what does 90% mean? Like, where did this stat come from? Why are they wiping out 90% of their wolves, especially not having any idea how many wolves were even there? So, I didn't know the population was over a 1,000, you know, estimated to be. Mm -hmm. So, because, like, as you said predator census is really hard to do. What's the actual number of predators that we have in an area? So, I mean, how were these governors, was it a rider? Like, how were they able to completely just jump our, the way that our government is done by with the people and their decisions? And, And also, what do you think is going to happen after this? So this big slaughter I don't know, What is it still happening? I don't seem to have Is okay. The other day I went on Instagram and I just every once in a while I like to look at just hashtag conservation just to see, you know, I like to really engage and, and meet people. And there was this person that just had a dead wolf. It was holding a dead wolf and was like, go slaughter them all or something like that with hashtag conservation. And I just like wanted to punch them through the phone. I'm just like, like you <laughs> that's not conservation. And I remember I understand hunting. I, I understand the harvest, you know, just, just the idea of using hunting as a way for conservation. I will mm-hmm. I completely understand. I understand why people might be mad about that. I get both sides, but I will never demonize hunters, especially the ethical ones, like you said. And I know a lot of ethical hunters. I have family who hunt and my sister makes the best deer jerky you've ever had in your freaking life. So like, I get it. I understand. I will never say that someone's bad because they go out and harvest whatever it is for their family, especially when it comes to subsidence hunting. I will never be mad about that. But what do we do about these freaking governors? Like, how do they how do they have the right? And is there a way for us to stop them or or what's going to happen now?
1: Well, I should say that doing things like this where a politician or a group of politicians overstep their bounds, especially regarding wildlife and conservation management. This situation is not new. This is not unprecedented, but this is very noticeable. This is very alarming because it is so noticeable and because it's so controversial. Other bills are often passed, but most people don't know about it where, the, the legislature has passed some kind of bill or, or directive that dictates how the wildlife agency in that state will manage a certain species of wildlife. Coyotes is a perfect example. A lot of states see coyotes as problematic. A lot of legislatures say, hey, wildlife agency, you're not going to manage these to conserve them. We're just going to consider them as, as vermin, as problematic, right? So this is not unprecedented. And I think that that's actually advantageous to us if you're concerned about this because this ought to be noticed now and we ought to be paying attention to whenever this happens so that we can say, hey, this is not okay. Governor X, you are the boss of a wildlife agency. You spend millions of dollars every year to hire these people and to let them do their jobs and then you completely go over them and in the case of Idaho and Montana, their state wildlife agencies were opposed to these bills. They even wrote to their governors and the legislatures saying, don't do this. this is, we do not recommend this. This is bad science. But it didn't matter, it didn't change anything. So we as a society need to start noticing more and calling out politicians when they are ignoring their own people. They're ignoring their own people. This is not like it was an outside group some wildlife activist group that is trying to manage the wolf. This is their own state agency. And the politicians are saying, you're not doing enough. And I ought to have put this in earlier in our conversation, but wolf predation can be additive in some locations. I already talked about that. But overall, Montana and Idaho's elk populations are at or above their objectives in every single unit. So that means there are at least as many elk, if not more elk now than there were before the wolves were reintroduced. That's great. As far as livestock depredation goes, I deal a lot with with uh, ranchers and depredation issues. I get it. If you're an individual that gets hit by a wolf that you didn't want there, that's that's an emotional reaction that it doesn't matter how much money or how sweetly I talk to you, we're never going to like be able to bandage that injury completely. People are going to have animosity towards wolves. But overall in Idaho, I think it was like 0.2% or 0.02% of livestock depredation that was documented and confirmed was actually happening from wolves. So the amount of depredation on livestock is so insignificant. So it's very reactionary. Which is why I, as a biologist, really, really, really want to talk about the real wolf. I'm tired of the hysteria. And it's ironic because I told you that even to me, the wolf is a symbol. It represents a, a wild America that is quickly disappearing. So I'm fighting for it. I acknowledge that. But as a scientist, I see that this is an animal which is neither sinner nor saint. It is is it's just doing its thing and it's we who are in conflict we're the ones who are in conflict over how we manage or mismanage wolves the wolf doesn't even care about us it's just doing its own thing and it's just very important for us to share truthful narratives about the wolf in order to try and deflate some of the hysteria let's not talk about the wolf again as some saint it it is not It is not some godsend. It is definitely not from hell. It's just an animal trying to live on the landscape. Let's talk about it. Let's be real about the problems. Where there's additive predation in certain units, let's fix that. And that's going to require removing wolves or mountain lions or whatever else we have in that area. Or reducing hunter tag limits. um, Harvesting quotas. If there's depredation in an area, if wolves or grizzly bears or whatever kind of predator you're dealing with is coming into a no- no occupancy zone, then let's remove them. This is what is so interesting about wolves is because they're so adaptive, we have ecological carrying capacities, which I think most of us are familiar with. That's basically on the landscape. There are only so many resources that can support a population. Once you use up those resources, then your population can't grow any larger. Well, with wolves, they can eat just about anything, they can live just about anywhere. So instead of a carry, an ecological carrying capacity, we have social carrying capacities, right? There are places where wolves can't live because we don't put up with it as society. And that's, that's okay. Like we have to accept that as a society, we're not gonna have wolves everywhere. We're not gonna have them everywhere in the United States. It's a shame, but it's the reality because there are some places we will not tolerate them. So where can we tolerate them? And where can we not tolerate them? We have to be proactive. We have to be realistic. And we also have to think in terms of conservation. The biggest threat that I see in the Intermountain West, aside from climate change, is hyper-urban development. We're seeing lots and lots of people moving into the West. Why? Because 50 years ago, you had to work outside. It was cold. It was miserable. Nowadays, you're comfortable. You can drive anywhere you want. You build a million dollar house. You got a heater, an air conditioner. You can go play on your your mountain and go skiing. It's a beautiful location. It's reconnecting to to nature and to wilderness. I get it. It's a fantastic place to be. My ancestors started the problem back in the mid 1800s, right? We want to be out here, but in doing so, we're shrinking the social carrying capacity of wolves. We're shrinking where we will tolerate them, where they can be. So we have to be conscious of protecting landscapes, of protecting habitat. Grizzly bears are like nosy three-year-olds. They will get into trouble if we let them roam anywhere we want. If we keep them away from people, then they stay out of trouble and they don't die. They're not managed lethally. So in terms of what we can do, just to reiterate, one, we have to notice when politicians are playing biologists and they're usurping public authority and the authority of biologists, which are government sponsored actually in this case. Two, we have to be realistic about our expectations of how we can coexist with large carnivores. Humans dominate this landscape. We dominate modern America. This is an anthropocentric world we live in. We can't continue sprawling our urban environments into wild environments and not expect us to shrink the coexistence level of tolerance that we have for these large carnivores, which dovetails with the third point, which is conservation of habitat. We have to be, we have to be thinking about where we recreate, how we recreate and how we develop our, our habitat.
0: And being in Colorado, <laughs> Just to see how much development has happened since I moved here in 2015 is disgusting. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. How many suburbs there are now around Denver that didn't exist just five years ago is absolutely insane. And I'm starting to see it more and more in the mountains with these big these people that have tons of money. The mass exodus out of California and all these other areas, people have money, and they are building these homes in wild places, and then they freak out when they see a coyote or the rare chance that a bobcat happens to go through. I mean, mountain lions are, gosh, under so much persecution— just because they're just trying to make a living. And they do thrive in this area. I mean, there's so many times online you'll see somebody posting a mountain lion in Boulder, just right up the road from where I am, as if it's a bad thing. It's just like, come on, that mountain lion's not doing anything. Like it's literally doing nothing. But then there becomes this mass hysteria, like you said. And it's like, well, you built your house there. Your house was not there five years ago. That, that's been that mountain lion's habitat and its mother's habitat and, you know, whatever for generations. And you just happen to build your home there. You need to learn how to live with the wildlife that you decided to move in with, essentially. And that's been one of my biggest just angers, I guess, of this state. And it's just growing so rapidly. Yeah, which before we move to Colorado, because that's like the perfect segue with wolves in Colorado. Is there anything that we can do about the slaughtering going on in Idaho and Montana before we move to Colorado?
1: Well, I think the the first thing anyone can do is you have to be proactive in your own state wildlife management. We were just talking a second ago about how people want to move closer to nature, right? This idea of nature. You know what, there isn't at its root, anything specifically or intrinsically more unique about the Rocky Mountains than what used to be in the Midwest or the East. Land is beautiful, nature is beautiful, and you can find it anywhere you want. And I get it, I'm totally guilty of wanting to move closer and closer to what I think is shrinking, and ironically, I am one of the people who is strangling this ideal of wilderness, right? We wanna be able to purchase our little slice of paradise. I totally get it. I can't fault anyone for wanting to do that. But I think that there has to come a time when we are temperate enough to say, you know what, I'm gonna live in a city where I can be happy enough to just commute to wild places. Mm -hmm. And perhaps even more importantly and more radically for your audience who doesn't live in the West, we have to begin to appreciate our own backyards more. Um, This is a sentiment that I recently encountered while reading a, a biography on Aldo Leopold, the father of modern wildlife management. And he was really pushing hard this idea that we can't shoulder the burden of conservation on public lands alone, because the majority of this country is owned by private citizens. And if we just say, hey, I've got national forests out west, I've got BLM land, I've got national parks, life is good, I'm gonna to work to protect those areas. That's not sufficient. That's not good enough. Instead of having one Yellowstone ecosystem, we should have 10. Why is it the last one? We should have them all over the place. And that begins with this idea of rewilding and appreciating our backyards. And how do you begin appreciating what's in your backyard? Well, start to work with your agencies locally. Start to work with your own states. I don't care if you're in Virginia or Rhode Island or Kansas or wherever. Find out how your wildlife is being managed. Participate in the public processes of how wildlife is managed. Most states hold public meetings where the biologists get up and they say, hey, these are our recommendations for how we should manage our white-tailed deer. Anyone have any thoughts? And at most of those meetings, there are four or five people attending, that's it. Wouldn't it be great if instead we had four or 500 people who actually cared about the wildlife in their backyard? If we can begin to do that, then we can look locally at uh, improving the integrity of our political and wildlife management system. I, I strongly advocate that it starts close to home because if you are living in Colorado or California or Florida, and you're writing to complain to idaho and montana frankly they're not going to care about your opinion because it's not your home it's not your state and i can appreciate that too um, unfortunately the best we can do is try and put as much pressure as we can upon these states and appreciate the real complexities that are there i wish that i could give you a silver bullet and i'm sure that people in your audience will be frustrated that i can't but no there's not a way that you can like like collectively choose to not go to idaho or montana and therefore you're disrupting their economy by not bringing your dollars in that's not going to happen right like if you decide to to ban a trip to montana because you're disgusted with wolf management there it's not going to change anything because yellowstone will have more visitors than ever this year because that's how the world's population is growing and that's how we behave So the best that I could say right now is to follow realistic scientific-based news, throw your voice in, demand that people manage wildlife responsibly based on science, and you have to be careful. It's not just anti-wildlifers, it's a lot of pro-wildlifers that sometimes jump to histrionics. And best of all, to be proactive at at a state level at a local level and be involved with how wildlife should be managed because ultimately this is a a public resource. It, It belongs to you and you have to decide how it's going to be managed and protected.
0: Love it. That was perfect. And the perfect segue to publicly managed wildlife that happened to be on the ballot, which happened to be the wolf, which happens to be in Colorado. So. Let's go through this because, as you alluded to, there was a wolf pack that naturally migrated into northern Colorado and is quite established. And there's even a collared wolf now, they have pups, everything. But also, this past season, this past mm, whatever you call it ballot, the wolves were barely passed to be um, reintroduced on a government level. Like, government's going to come in and reintroduce as well. Could you take us through all of this? Maybe what your thoughts are? Is reintroduction necessary? I mean, I really don't have much of an opinion one way or the other, because I don't know what to think personally, myself, because reintroduction, just like you said, Big Brother comes in. Are people gonna be really mad that we are bringing wolves in against their will? Are they gonna be happy? It did pass the ballot and there is already a pack here. So, I'm personally confused in my own feelings. I mean, I love that wolves are here because I am pro wildlife pro predator. But I'm one person with a biologist view that understands predators really well. So, what do you think about this whole thing? And I'm just I'm your neighbor. Like this is mm-hmm. whatever's happening here is going to affect I'm sure neighboring states as well. So please enlighten us on on this whole issue, topic.
1: Yeah, so to give you background, Colorado's historic wolf habitat, Colorado actually has the largest elk population in the lower 48 states. Um, The western front, the western part of the state, it's got great, excellent, wild, Rocky Mountain wolf habitat. Um, Because wolves used to be here, once upon a time, they were eradicated in like the 1940s, the state decided to offer up a ballot box initiative to get people's opinions on whether or not the state should reintroduce wolves. Again, it was once a native species. Um, The state wanted to decide whether or not folks wanted wolves back. This is really unique because elsewhere... It's the federal government which has been dealing with restoring imperiled species on the landscape. This would be the first time ever that a state decides to restore a species that is native back to its historic range. So that's why this is such a big deal. It's because it's not the federal government that's doing this. This is Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Some different advocates, wolf advocates, and biologists really pushed hard for this idea, saying, Hey, it would be fantastic if we brought wolves back. What a cool idea. What a novel experience. Um, it would restore the environment to some degree, um, the ecosystem to some degree. Let's bring wolves back. And so uh, at the end of 2020, Colorado voted on whether or not they wanted to have wolves come back. Now, I want to say this up front some people who I think are wolf advocates or at least relatively well educated, they say that they didn't vote for it or they didn't support it because they don't like the idea of the public determining wildlife management issues which is a stupid, stupid sentiment because the public in this country vote on everything and it doesn't matter if you're not, it doesn't matter what your background is, you have the opportunity to to vote on national security issues you have the opportunity to vote on uh, economic policies so for us to say we shouldn't do this because the public isn't the public aren't wildlife experts i I think that that's just ridiculous because that's democracy right like how we run it's how we run our country so i understand the concerns but yeah like we have bigger fish to fry than than wolf restoration in terms of national security, and, and yet we're letting everyone vote on those issues. So yeah, ballot box initiative, they did, They decided to, uh, ballot box biology, I should say. Um, does the public want to bring wolves back, yes or no? It was that simple. And the public voted yes. Now, that's great, but before the vote, um, there were projections, Projections that about 84% of the state's population supported wolf recovery. But after the vote, there was only a, a slight margin by which the vote passed. I think it was like a 50.6% majority. It was
0: super... It almost didn't go through. It was super close. Right, <laughs> right.
1: Which, this is why I'm super alarmed. I'm, I'm very alarmed by this because if you have that many... Politically and publicly active citizens who are opposed to the wolf and the ones that are advocating for the wolf are relatively few in number when it comes to voting day, then it goes to show that the community at large, at least the, the stability of the community is mostly, or at least a large portion of it, is opposed to wolf restoration. And I would hate to see wolves brought into a state where there's so much animosity because I don't think it's fair to the species. I hoped that Colorado would have been more mature in accepting wolves back on the landscape. I hoped that they would have had a better uh, turnout when it came to voting on the issue. I, I hope that there would be more support, but frankly, I'm very disconcerted by By the amount of opposition compared to the the amount of support For wolf restoration in Colorado like you. I'm an advocate for biodiversity I want wolves everywhere that they can be But I also don't want to send them to their own destruction (laughs) I don't want I don't want to set up a project that is bound to fail due to human sentiment and animosity So this is an issue that I mentioned earlier was brought up during the restoration of and recovery of wolves in the Northern Rockies. Should we be bringing wolves back? Like, should we just let them recolonize on their own? Um, There's a pack in Colorado. Actually just a couple of years before a wolf reintroduction into Yellowstone, a wolf from Northwestern Montana made it all the way down almost to Jackson Hole on its own, which created a big stir because, Should we be bringing them in if they're going to just come down naturally? There's science that shows there's more social tolerance for predators that naturally recolonize versus government intervening. But I also am concerned and appreciate the concerns of others about the viability of recolonization, specifically on a Western anthropocentric landscape. 85% of Wyoming is a wolf-free zone. You can't have wolves. So the fact that a wolf pack made it from the Yellowstone ecosystem down into Colorado is a miracle. Yeah, it's (laughs) mind-blowing. Like how how long are we going to have to wait before another breeding pair come down? And is it going to be so long that the current wolf population, it's not a population, excuse me, the current wolf pack dissipates, it dissolves before then. Wolves don't interbreed. Who are these... Where are the pups that have just been born going to breed with and where right. are they going to disperse to? So how long is this, this pack actually going to be in Colorado if you don't bring wolves back? So anyway, going back to the, the vote, um, the idea was now for Colorado parks and wildlife to create a wolf management plan and to, to bring wolves into Colorado by the end of 2023. So that's the game plan. What the details are, um, state is still trying to figure out the fact that they got a wolf pack. Coincidentally, about the same time that the vote was happening, really complicated the issue. Also, you have concerns about how the wolf will be managed and what monies will be used to manage the wolf. So this is a bit archaic and I don't wanna digress down this rabbit hole too far, but something that is immensely outdated and needs to change in this country is the fact that all of your wildlife management at a state level and even a national level is funded by the sale of hunting licenses, fishing licenses, and the purchase of uh, firearms and ammunition. Now, this was a great idea back in the early 1900s when everyone hunted and fished and were buying and using firearms. But this nation is, is quickly determining that hunting and fishing is becoming antiquated. And I hope it never goes away but there are certainly more people who don't hunt and fish and yet who appreciate wildlife than there are of hunters and fishers in the demographic of our, of our population. And I think that if we are going to continue to fund wildlife conservation effectively, then we need to start taxing uh, non-consumptive wildlife recreation and and outdoor recreation so I don't know if that's taxing binoculars and bikes and tents etc and then having a a percent go to wildlife management for each state or, or however you want to see it but right now it's just your hunters and anglers that are footing the bill for the biologists to do their research and a lot of hunters especially in Colorado are concerned about the wolf coming back onto the landscape because they know how competitive it is for them to draw a tag to go hunt an elk or a deer because the human population is so large. So hunters are already competing with each other aggressively to try and get an opportunity to hunt. And now you're going to introduce another predator on the landscape, which is going to decrease their odds of drawing a tag. Naturally, they're they're disinclined to support or at least be in favor of Wolf restoration in Colorado. And I'm speaking generally, right? There are hunters right. and ranchers who are actually not opposed to this. But the state has to decide if they're going to have hunters and anglers foot the bill for wolf restoration, which is something that a majority of them are opposed to. And if they don't foot it, then where is this money going to come from? Is it going to come from taxes elsewhere? Maybe Colorado has already determined this, but the last time I was following the conversation, they hadn't. They were trying to figure it out because it's gonna be expensive. And yeah, it costs a lot of money to manage wolves. So who's gonna who's gonna pay that? Ultimately, I hope wolves recover everywhere. Again, I'm I'm an advocate of wolves, and I also believe, I'm a firm believer in the possibility of coexistence, because the greatest hurdle we have to overcome is the myth of the wolf. That's not to downplay the size of this mountain that we have to overcome because the myth is is really hard to break down but we're trying to chip away at it and say hey wolves are adaptive they're dangerous like all other wildlife species are dangerous they're the least dangerous of our large carnivores in north america we almost have no attacks but that doesn't mean that there won't be attacks ever That's something that we have to come to appreciate and decide if we want to risk that or not as a population. But we also have to decide what wildness and biodiversity means to us as a nation and what sacrifices we're willing to make in order to to try and diversify and improve our environment and to restore predators to the landscape, native predators at that. It's, It's just so many good intentions, so many good ambitions. I just hope that we're able to one make the the good decisions and two I also hope that we're able to um, to set aside enough space that we don't strangle these predators with our own land uses and our own human interests Um, because again you can be a, a you can have a large community of wolf advocates but if you all live in the suburbs The suburbs are not grizzly bear or wolf habitat, so they can't live there. And if we keep developing and developing without any restraint, then we're, we're shrinking the landscapes that these carnivores can exist on.
0: I think the next natural question then would be, how do we coexist with them? How do we help ranchers that will be footing the bill? If this really does happen, if wolves really do proliferate, More and more across the United States. There will be more conflict. There will be more lifestyle taken even if it's small compared to other predators across the world like 0.02 percent. Oh my god That's like nothing compared to some other parts of the world where conflict is really crazy. But again, it's the viewpoint of it and I can't ever Say that one person is wrong because they are personally affected by this like I completely understand and I don't I don't want to say oh Yeah, it's you suck it up like you have that land and they're on there. So what, what do we do? And I, from what I understand, you're researching this through your PhD as well. So mm-hmm. it, are there any, um, you, you said predator deterrence earlier. Is there anything that you're researching or that we can do or talk about or, or whatever it is to coexist with this predator assuming that as population increases because we know the human population is going to increase <laughs> so yeah. as it increases too
1: yeah yeah i think that that's an exciting issue right so the world has seen a lot of biodiversity crises but here in the west we're experiencing this really bizarre conundrum where a lot of our carnivores are recovering into areas where they have historically been absent mountain lions are the only large cat species I heard the other day that are actually growing in number and not shrinking in number. The wolves are, even though we've got you know, horror stories coming out of Idaho and Montana, they're still being well distributed across the, a vast landscape in Europe and throughout the Americas. And yet the human population is continuing to grow, just like you said. So all we can anticipate if the trajectory remains the same is that there will be more and more frequent overlap, right? And so how do we prepare for this? So my doctorate actually focuses on predicting wolf patterns on an anthropocentric landscape for conflict prevention. That's kind of the dissertation in a nutshell. So we're focusing on what areas can wolves live based off of ecological requirements and social requirements. There's a really cool paper that was just published by um, a researcher who's named uh, Mark Dittmer. He works for the Forest Service now, but he just published a study based on where wolves can live in Colorado using this this same paradigm, not just environmental features or ecological features, but also social features. And by determining what resources we have, species distribution modeling, habitat distribution modeling, we can say wolves can live here, they're likely to live here, and what is here that is going to cause conflict so that we can be prevent so we can be preemptive in preventing conflict so one is forecasting right our science is good enough that we can say these are the areas where we should be looking for concerns we can't predict every single concern we can't we can't predict every or excuse me predict every conflict but we can begin to have the foresight to say these are sensitive areas so let's start proactively looking for solutions before the problems arise and tools can be used primarily non-lethal predator deterrence everything from flagry, which is uh like long roped twine with flags hanging down which scare coyotes and and wolves to uh flashing lights things called fox lights which are i mean if you look at predator deterrents online, they're pretty basic. They're not like ingenious contraptions, but it's like these are are tools that can be implemented in order to try and mitigate depredation and mitigate conflict. We're looking at generating, and we're testing out right now other predator deterrents, which are ear tags that flash in the night and hopefully will scare away coyotes and wolves and other canids or predators in the area in order to protect livestock. Now, all of these things are great, but they're also not always practical in the West where we have free-ranging livestock on, on public land and you have vast herds and you can't corral your animals at night. Nevertheless, that doesn't mean that we can't think of other creative solutions. Range riding is an excellent option. And again, you look at communities that have always coexisted with large carnivores where they have not been absent for decades and then suddenly reintroduced and there's a sense of tolerance just because the carnivores have always been there just like the weather sometimes is a factor in, in causing depredation property damage of your livestock um, there's just a there's more of a tolerance of that's how things go and so it does it does take a bit of a mindset check we have to think about these animals differently we have to accept that they're on the landscape We also have to support and collaborate with livestock owners and ranchers. I often point out that the rancher who owns a 1,000 acres might not like the grizzly bear, but he creates a better habitat for the grizzly bear than the suburbs do, which if that rancher wasn't owning that piece of land, they probably would have suburbs there. So we need to thank the ranchers, and sure, I get it. I can respect and appreciate the fact that they have the hard job of not getting rich working with livestock outside when it's cold, wet, and rainy, and snowy. And then they have to coexist with a predator that they want so bad to go away. So we can become affiliated with local conservation groups, even big ones like the nature conservancy that try and collaborate with these landowners and support them. So they don't feel alienated. So they don't feel disempowered, give them a voice and then react to their issues their problems their conflicts individually so don't make it an us versus them thing it would be so much more fantastic if we as a society could cooperate and if we could show some civility some respect and some concern and do our best to offset the negative impacts of carnivores to try and make these these ranchers and these farmers lives a little bit easier yeah
0: and is going to take a big mind shift and it's also going to take a big mind shift just like you said for those of us who are in this field who are big advocates for wildlife we have to reach over on the other side we have to shake hands all of us are stakeholders in this all of us are stakeholders in wolves being here on the land it doesn't matter if we want to trophy hunt them it doesn't matter if we want to just have them to take wildlife photos It doesn't matter if we are the rancher. All of us are a stakeholder and we need to come to the conversation together and understand each other's sides so that we can have a open dialogue and come to an actual management plan where everybody can at least felt like they were heard in some way, shape or form. So... I completely agree with that. Sometimes the people who are the most anti-hunting or anti-consumptive are sometimes the scariest and then the other way around. Like Sometimes the people that are the biggest hunting advocates are sometimes also the scariest. So it's like, let's all come together because this is a very controversial topic and somebody's going to lose someday. And let's just hope that it's not a whole entire wolf pack. That mm-hmm. is a loss at the end of the day too. Because at the end of the day, if we keep fighting, they're going to die, essentially. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it now. We're seeing mass slaughter because we did not stand up and talk to our governors enough and from everything that you so kindly explained to us. Like we have a part of this as well. And so get involved in your local government. Like I'm going to figure out when my next wildlife meeting is too, so that I can go say that but have my part in you know being a, a predator friendly person but also understanding the other side like how can I get av- involved in this conversation and just listen because I've never talked to a rancher here I've never done that but and so they they have every single right like yeah I might understand wolves I might understand predator biology but I don't own a thousand head of cattle I, I don't know what that's like and I have no right to judge you for you not wanting wolves so Erin, oh my gosh, thank you so much for just sitting down and taking us through all of that because that was a lot. And like I said, I've been wanting to have this exact conversation for a very long time now. And I had the opportunity to ask you everything I wanted, which thank you. And of course, if anyone listening has any questions, I can definitely pass along their um, their questions. But on that note, if somebody does want to get a hold of you or if you happen to be in Yellowstone and they won't be like, hey, Aaron, what's up? Is there a way that people could possibly get a hold of you and maybe continue this conversation further?
1: Um, yeah, I have an Instagram account. It's just my name. So it's C <laughs> underscore Aaron Bot. And uh, yeah, I love, I love talking to people because my supervisor in Yellowstone, I think, points out uh, very poignantly that we don't educate people about wolves. Because they already have their minds made up about whether they like them or whether they dislike them. But we can always have discussions with them. And I I really feel strongly that having these discussions can only improve the civility of a very controversial subject. And hopefully we can move forward in a positive way.
0: Couldn't agree more. That's why I wanted to have you on and talking about both sides. Because we have to talk about both sides. We can't just talk about wolves. We also have to talk about people. So